This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'm Rachel Kipp, Associate Editorial Director for the Knowledge at Wharton website. Our host, Dan Loney, has graciously shared the mic with me for our next segment. We're going to be talking about dealing with your invisible audience on social media. And so you might be asking, who is your invisible audience? And unfortunately, most of us don't find that out until one ill-timed tweet or Facebook post blows up in our faces. And that can be as relatively minor as finding out that a friend or a coworker was offended by one of your updates, and maybe you have to apologize or deal with some comments that might make you feel bad. But the most extreme consequences of this were highlighted in a recent story in the New York Times Magazine. The article was actually adapted from an upcoming book by John Ronson, and it features people who made some careless posts that actually led to them being attacked by strangers around the world, and in some cases they actually ended up losing their jobs thanks to the furor that these posts created. So we've got a couple of guests here to talk about these issues and how you can make sure it doesn't happen to you. So joining us in the studio is Nancy Rothbard. She's a Wharton management professor who has studied how people define the boundaries between their work and professional lives on social media. Nancy, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Rachel. And on the phone, we've got Amanda Gailey, an assistant professor of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She specializes in digital text editing, and she also teaches a class called Being Human in the Digital Age. Amanda, thanks for being here. Thank you, Rachel. So I think the obvious question that a lot of us ask when we read these stories, kind of like what's prof- what was profiled in the Times, and there are an increasingly large number of them. I know before we started here, Nancy was showing me some more recent ones, is how, does the, how did this happen? Like, how... Could people have been so tenured? So, um, Amanda, I think we'll start with you, and then we'll go to Nancy. Yeah, I think that um, over the past several years, people have just gotten more and more acclimated to posting what might have been considered sort of um, mundane, unimportant, and and private (laughs) thoughts online. And it's just become so normal, and we're so immersed in it that I think people can Um, post things rapidly without a lot of reflection, and then they're surprised when something they said is taken out of context or misunderstood. Yes, so I I agree with that. Um, One of the things that is really interesting is that more and more Americans have gone online, and it is becoming, um, yet we don't have the ability to understand what some of the ramifications of our actions are online. And so sometimes what happens is we post things that we're and we're thinking about it. And you mentioned this earlier, Rachel, the visible audience, right? Those are the people who comment or like or interact with us around our online uh, posts and uh, what we what we uh, discuss online. But there's all sorts of people who are in our invisible audience. Those are the people who we've connected with in some way, but have, you know, they're, they're just sort of in the background. And, you know, they might be watching what we're doing. Maybe they're not watching what we're doing. But, but you know, or occasionally they are. And so what happens is we really pay a lot more attention to the visible audience than the invisible. It, it's just a very natural uh, cognitive uh, bias that we have to pay attention to what is um, what's highlighted for us, and what we what we then forget about is the invisible audience. And so, when we post things, we're really not 
aware of how that might come off to a broader group. Right. And right. then I, I wonder that it also seems like, you know, people, maybe when you're in front of someone, you're talking to someone, you can kind of read their visual cues. If maybe what you're saying is offending them, you might be able to figure that out from that. But, you know, we can't really read a room over social media. Right. And, and, that, and that's exactly part of the challenge, right? When we have this media, which is so powerful in terms of broadcasting our ideas to a large set of audiences and groups, what happens is we don't then have the the cues that we have in, in real life, either verbal or nonverbal cues. So it could be facial expressions. It could also be how somebody's reacting in terms of their voice or, or even responding to what we're saying where we, we might back off a little bit. Uh, you know, maybe we're having a conversation with a colleague and we start talking about political views and we, we, we see that the colleague doesn't seem to be uh, sharing our enthusiasm for that particular uh, political um, uh, idea, and then we back off, right? And mm-hmm. so and we switch, we change topics or what have you, and then we smooth things over. Whereas online, we don't have those opportunities. And Amanda, I think you had something to add. Well, I, w- I was just going to add that I think um, one complication in all of this, um, I, I very much agree with Nancy's observation about the visible and invisible audience. There's also, though, often an audience that. Um, someone can be completely unaware of because a lot of users of social media don't quite understand the privacy controls and the fact that Mm -hmm. sometimes Facebook, for example, just really defaults to a very open um, kind of privacy status. So you could be chugging along for years posting things and, you know, you've never received any kind of blowback for it. And it just takes you posting one sort of ill-advised Um, comment or um, a photo that could be misunderstood and for the right person sharing that to suddenly discover that your profile is wide open. And um, so I think that that can be part of it too, is that people are not always fully aware of who can be listening in to the conversations that they're having. Right. And I know, I mean, Facebook seems to change it all the time. Mm -hmm. So we are talking with Nancy Rothbard, Wharton Management Professor, and Amanda Gailey from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln on Knowledge at Wharton, Sirius XM, Channel 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We're talking about how to deal with your invisible audience on social media. So Nancy, you had actually done some research recently about managing your work and professional personas on social media. What are some of the different strategies that people take to deal with this? And I know that also brings in some of what Amanda was saying about you know, privacy controls and sort of knowing, having the tech savvy to know how some of these sites work. Absolutely. And I I entirely agree with what Amanda was saying, that the privacy piece of this is really critical because we have a very... um, we, we have a very undeveloped idea. For example, on Facebook, you post something and it's friends of friends that can see something. So if your friend makes a comment on your post, mm-hmm. their friends can see it too. Mm-hmm. So you may not actually even be connected to folks that you have that, that then see what you are disclosing. Uh, and, and so um, I really, I, I really want to emphasize that point because I think it's absolutely critical. Um, what we've done is we, we've, we've done some research. Uh, my colleagues and I, Ariane Ollier-Malatere, who is at uh, the University of Quebec, uh, Montreal in Canada, and my doctoral student here, Justin Berg, um, we've, we've done some work looking at 
what kinds of strategies do people tend to use in managing some of their online presence? And what we found was that four strategies emerged uh, from our from our research. One is what we call the audience strategy. And the audience strategy is where you try to very carefully manage who actually is in your audience. So so that you know you're you curate very carefully who is allowed to see what you post and what you don't post. And all of these strategies, by the way, have costs and and benefits. Um, so and there are costs to this audience strategy as well, not just the benefit of having more control over who's in your audience. Because as Amanda said earlier, the privacy settings allow other people to see things mm-hmm. too. The second strategy we found was what we call the content strategy. And that's where you very carefully curate the content that you post. So you don't post controversial types of information, political opinions, uh, you know, uh, pictures that might, you know, be uh, misconstrued jokes that can go wrong when taken out of context. Um, So you're very careful about managing your impression through the content that you post. But again, that can be difficult as well, um, because it's not always clear how things uh, come off to other folks. Uh, The third strategy that we see uh, for how people try to manage these um, these uh, their their online presence is a combination, really, of the audience and the content strategy, and we call it the custom strategy. And the custom strategy is where you try to customize your content to a particular type of audience. And here, you have to really understand privacy settings very, very well. Mm-hmm. Um, things like lists on Facebook, uh, maybe having different accounts for different uh, sets of audiences, and um, that can be, you know, that can be really much better in terms of achieving more of the tailored disclosure that you have in real life. But it also comes with the cost of tremendous time, energy, and skill that Mm -hmm. is needed to pull that off correctly. If, If you mess that up, it can really backfire on you as well. And the last strategy that we saw people using isn't as much a strategy, but almost a non-strategy. This is called the open strategy or open behaviors, where people just sort of let it all hang out. They decide, you know what, I am. I want people to see the authentic me, the good, bad, and the ugly, and I want people to know me as who I am. I'm going to show you when I have a bad day. I'm going to talk about how depressed I am, mm-hmm. and you know how I need a glass of wine at night. You know when I have a good day, I'm going to shout that from the rooftops. Um, you know I'm going to tell you my thoughts. You know without a lot of filtering, and you're going to know me, and and that's that's what I care about, right? And that obviously has the benefits of people really seeing you as authentic, but it has some of some costs in terms of you know, a great, actually quite a few costs in terms of the risks of, um, that that we've been talking, along the lines that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. So Amanda, as I was saying at our intro, that you actually teach a class about some of these issues at UN Lincoln. And I'm wondering, like, what kind of mindsets do the students come in when they take this class? I mean, are they, do they have really strong feelings about authenticity and privacy? And does it change over the course of the class? Yeah, I think it does. I think that um, one one change I've seen over the last several years of teaching undergraduate students is that I think in general they have become um, a little more sophisticated in their understanding of privacy online, and they have now grown up, um, you know, they've, they've kind of come of age after a lot of um, um, 
sort of cautionary tales <laughs> have, have been out in the public. So they have, I think, learned not to maybe post every photo from the party they went to, you know, the week period. They've, they've kind of learned these things in ways that I don't think students had even, you know, five years ago. Um, I think that they are sensitive to issues of authenticity, but they're also very sensitive to, about saying something that could um, destroy friendships or ruin employment prospects. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have seen a kind of more in, intelligence um, about that. And I think that the other thing that impresses me ab- about them is that they are also, I, I think they have a more nuanced understanding of of shaming um, than maybe even people slightly older do (laughs) who Mm -hmm. haven't grown up in the same kind of digital environment and and had a lot of their um, lives laid out in the open the way that um, younger people have. And that's sort of one of the things we talk about in my class is what, what should we do, if anything, when we see people seeming to misbehave online? Right. And, you know, what is our moral obligation in those contexts? How can we um, maybe participate in a life, uh, a public life that discusses um, good and bad behavior or public policy in a way that also doesn't engage in witch hunts and a kind of mob mentality? Right. Actually, that brought me to my next set of questions. I guess I'm wondering now, I mean, it seems like often we don't really know how badly we were reading our audience, whether they're visible or invisible, until after we've made a gaffe and we've seen sort of the firestorm of reaction, whether it's a small one or a big one. And so my question for both of you is, I guess, if you make a gaffe, if you do something that was maybe ill-considered, careless, whatever you want to say, it, what do you do? And so I guess, Nancy, we'll start with you and then go to Amanda. Sure. I mean, I, this is obviously really challenging in terms of how do you re- how do you recover right from a mistake like this. And one thing that's really important: the literature on trust shows that when people apologize uh, for something, it's actually really important that it be framed as you're apologizing for a mistake, something that was a competence error rather than an integrity violation. So when people are make a mistake and they apologize for making a mistake, others view them as, okay, you made a mistake, you can learn from it, you can, you can improve. When the, uh, the violation is framed as something that has to do with your integrity, people don't believe that you can reco- that, that you can learn from that, right? Mm-hmm. They, they think that that's much more, um, that's much more fixed. Uh, whether that's true or not, that's how we respond. Uh, as humans to to those kinds of apologies. So, for example, um, this is a famous example of this was, you know, with Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky affair, right, mm-hmm. when he apologized, right? So that, if people viewed that as an integrity violation, they had a, they had a really hard time forgiving that, him. If, if, if they viewed him as making a mistake that he could learn from in the future, then that was, that's where they would, they were willing to forgive. And he very cleverly framed this as a competence error rather than an integrity error. Whether everybody believed that or not, you know, is anyone's guess. Anyone's guess. Thank you. Right. Amanda? Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. I had not thought about that before in terms of um, competence versus integrity. And I, I can already see that being a useful frame, you know, for some of the 
more high-profile incidents that you see online. And I guess my interest in this is sort of what is the audience moral responsibility mm-hmm. in situations like that. And I, um, I hope I'm not jumping ahead. Oh, no, it's fine. Um, and I think to me, um, you know, it, technically it seems like shaming someone for something that seems to be terrible that they said can possibly have some kind of social justice utility. But I think there are so many caveats surrounding that, that um, we have to tread very cautiously (laughs) um, into that territory. And one thing that I have found helpful is to separate shaming from exposure. Mm -hmm. And so I think that sometimes um, an organization or um, a, a group of people who are interested in a political concern might reveal what individual people online are saying or doing, not with the intention of punishing or humiliating those individuals, Mm -hmm. but simply of raising public consciousness about the fact that a certain kind of mindset or behavior exists that we need to tackle um, as as a community. So it's more like, look, we have a problem with racism, but not let's go get the pitchforks and go after this individual person. Mm-hmm. And I think that that second kind of behavior, which is let's go get this individual person, is, is um, shaming as exposed to um, exposure. And then I guess, you know, I, I think there are all kinds of ways that that can go horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it can start with, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess I, I have some questions I think someone should should ask themselves before engaging in that. And one is, um, is the behavior that you're attacking actually um, harmful? Mm-hmm. Um, is the target influential? Is this a kind of public person, a policy decider, a corporation, or is it just a kind of random person, right? And are you absolutely sure that you understand the context of the comment and are you absolutely sure that that behavior is indicative of the person's general sensibilities? Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of these cases, they're just not. It's a, it, it, you know, someone will expose or, or try to shame someone based on a tweet that might have been terribly misguided and um, really poorly executed. But if you look at this person and you look at other things they've posted, you can tell that that's not really what they meant. You might not even so know them. Yeah, it's really tragic then to see someone's career get destroyed over something like that. And once you open up that spigot of public shaming, you don't know what's going to come out and you can't turn it off. And so I think, you know, when I see the cases where they they seem to have gone terribly wrong, Mm -hmm. a lot of that criteria was not met before people kind of – you know, released the Kraken right. <laughs> of, of public opinion onto the person. The Twitter Kraken. Right. <laughs> You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton. We're Sirius X, on Sirius XM Channel 111, business radio, powered by the Wharton School. And we're talking about how to deal with your invisible audience on social media. Joining us is Wharton Management Professor Nancy Rothbart and Amanda Gailey, an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. And as we were just talking about, that many of many times when people have made some of these careless tweets online, they have kind of faced a so-called, I guess, digital mob. 
And I know in the story, in the cases profiled in the Times, I mean, it sounds like, as you said, Amanda, like people would kind of, they jumped first before thinking. And, you know, there were Facebook groups made to call for these people to get fired. People, I mean, there was one woman who on her 12-hour flight to South Africa, she was sort of unknowingly on this plane while she became a trending topic. You know, she, she was pretty much fired by the time she got off the plane. People were there waiting for her to take pictures when she got off the plane. And so I guess I'm curious to know, I mean... What do you think is fueling this? I mean, people, I guess people have a right to be offended if something goes against what they believe in. But why, why are they kind of not thinking before they're going on and sort of why aren't they going through that process you talked about, Amanda? And I guess we'll go to you first and then hear from Nancy. Well, I think it's just an age old kind of vigilante mob mentality. And, you know, I, I think in some cases, the initial behavior can be truly offensive, and there's good reason why people want to speak out against it. But then it just takes on this kind of life of its own where it becomes a sort of sport, you know, um, mm-hmm. that people take turns piling on. Um, the, the responses can very quickly become increasingly um, aggressive and violent and far surpass whatever the initial supposed offense was. You know, when you've got death threats and wishes of sexual violence against someone because Mm -hmm. they might have said something that rubbed you the wrong way. And I think that, you know, we can see that kind of um, vigilante mob mentality happening long before the advent of, um, you know, even print, much less, um, uh, you know, know, mass media print or uh, digital media. And it's just a kind of maybe ugly component of um, social psychology. Mm-hmm. Nancy? So I think that one of the I, – I, I agree with Amanda. We've always seen this kind of uh, reaction. Uh, but I think that what's different about the online media is this lack of context, right? Things are really taken out of context quite a bit. We don't know – the person often, we don't know the circumstances that we're referring to. We don't have the context around what it is that they're saying that allows us to interpret it um, as a joke or not, mm-hmm. right? Or as, you know, just, you know, them, maybe they, they uh, tend, they're the kind of person who tends to be outlandish and kind of makes these statements. But in real life, you know that if you push back on them, they're very reasonable, right? And so we don't have that context in the online setting to be able to evaluate these types of comments. Um, And so that's one piece of it. Then the second piece is, you know, I do think that there is something oddly intimate about the online setting despite Mm -hmm. this, right? There's something, like when people text, there's something very oddly intimate about the immediacy of that. There's something about that that makes us feel like we ought to know the person or that we do know the person better than we do. And that we, right, and we think we know them better than we do in in a weird way. Mm -hmm. And so we feel, I think, able to make these judgments. You know, so it's it's this very odd... um, juxtaposition of lack of context and odd intimacy, right, that this, that this uh, medium provides that I think allows these um, incidents to flare up uh, into this very large blaze uh, of a four-alarm fire rather than just being sort of something you put out very quickly. Right. So we're actually out of time for today, but I would love to thank our guest, um, Wharton Management Professor Nancy Rothbard. Nancy, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Rachel. And on the phone, thanks as well to Amanda Gailey from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Amanda, it was great to have you. Thank you. It was great being here. 
For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.